0: Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to
1: Roadside we Horror Show. Game.
0: We are in Arizona this week because, yeah, I remember that now, that we're in Arizona.
1: Oh, good, good. So I'm assuming you have a, a Arizona story for me.
0: I do, and not a Utah story.
1: Woo, close call. Close call.
0: Very close call. I'm glad that we couldn't record that day because otherwise <laughs> things would have gotten real messed
1: up. Would have gotten real weird real quick.
0: Oh, yeah. Arizona part two. Here we come.
1: Yeah. Speaking of weird, um, Arizona has weird laws, but it's interesting because a lot of the weirdest laws are actually myths. They're not true at all. So, what? yeah, isn't that bizarre? Like I came across several articles when I was looking for like weird laws in Arizona and like several of them are like, and then these laws are just complete myths. So I'm like, what? Why would uh, you?
0: What? I, so, I don't understand, but okay.
1: So like, for example, one of the laws that's supposedly a law in Arizona is that no more than six women can live together in a house in Maricopa County that's not actually a law in Maricopa County. It's just a myth.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I have seen that law in other places because then it's considered a brothel. And yep, yep, Yeah. But Arizona, good for not actually having that one.
1: Yeah. And that, that's kind of interesting because a lot of the laws that were myths are laws that we've seen in other places. You know, like having our four-legged hoofed friends, whether it's a donkey or a horse in a bathtub, uh, and making that illegal. That one popped up a lot as a fake Law in Arizona. So,
0: first we had fake news, now we have fake laws. What is going on?
1: <laughs> well, I was able to dig up a couple of true and weird laws for Arizona. Uh, let's go ahead and get started on the actual ele- weird laws that they have on the books. Uh, the first one is very Arizona. So, it's illegal to dig up and move a saguaro. Cactus, or even chop one down.
0: Okay, so no cactus removal. Gotcha. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And the saguaro cactus is that like very emblematic cactus of the Southwest, where you think of it, almost looks like a man with his arms raised. Those are saguaro yes. cactuses.
0: That's all I think of when I think of cacti. So <laughs>
1: uh, it turns out, if you do dig up and move one, or if you chop one down, you can face up to twenty five years in prison for breaking this law. Damn. Yeah, it's it's an endangered cactus and it's considered a state treasure in Arizona. That's why it has such a harsh penalty. Wow. Okay. Uh, Speaking of caring for the environment, uh, in Arizona, it's also illegal if you kill uh, or hunt a game bird, game mammal, or game fish and knowingly permit an edible portion to go to waste.
0: Okay. So food waste is a very
1: big deal hmm mm-hmm. Basically, it's a take only what you need to survive even when you're hunting in Arizona. And it's one of the oldest rules of sustainability when it comes to hunting. And it's enshrined in law in Arizona, which is kind of awesome. Wow. Uh, the next law kind of goes without saying, but it's illegal to feed a pig garbage in Arizona.
0: Why would you feed a pig garbage?
1: Yeah, it's kind of odd because oftentimes like a pig slop is just leftover human food right and you just yeah. take it out and you give it to the pigs well in Arizona that's okay but any additional household waste that you might have uh, you cannot feed your pig so very interesting so that leftover omelet that you didn't eat in the morning sure give it to Porky but if you have any other kind of trash or refuse don't feed it to your pig which is just should shouldn't be a law should just go without saying don't feed Animal's garbage. No
0: aluminum cans. No, you know, like uh, not the, that box of cables that you've had sitting in the attic for 10 years.
1: <laughs> exactly, Eden. I'm glad you get this law so you won't go be prosecuted for it.
0: Well, I guess I have to stop feeding my pig all that stuff now, though.
1: <laughs> if we're not in Arizona, you're fine.
0: I was wondering why he was having indigestion, but
1: you know. <laughs> uh, this law I kind of love. Uh, it's colloquially known as the stupid motorist law.
0: Okay, I like it already.
1: And what this law is, is if you're driving in Arizona and the road is flooded out and it's clearly been barricaded by officials, aka they put up barricades, and you make the choice to drive around those barricades... And you get stuck and stranded, and they have to call in a rescue operation for you. You are on the hook for paying for your own stupidity, basically, and uh, you will have to pay the rescue, emergency rescue bills for here, here, for for anything that might occur. So, I mean,
0: makes sense, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think it. It's kind of that direct. Like people are dumb; they're gonna do what they want. But when you give them financial repercussions of being a jerk and wasting resources by willfully ignoring caution signs, then yeah, I'm all for you paying the bill for that search oh, and yeah. rescue team. Definitely. Speaking of other roadway laws in Arizona, uh, Arizona law affords the same protections and rights to animals that are being used as conveyances as motor vehicles. So. If you're riding a horse, you have to follow the regular traffic laws. Same goes with donkeys, camels, any other animal whose back you can ride on, as well as horse pulled carriages. A horse pulled carriage is considered the equivalent to a motor vehicle under Arizona law.
0: Okay, so it has to obey like stop signs and stuff?
1: Yep, stop signs. Uh, It has to stay on the right side of the road, all that good stuff. Oh, this one's kind of fun. In the town of Avondale, Arizona, it is illegal to participate in any activity such as fortune-telling, palm-reading, or palmistry. Hmm. Uh, if you do so, try to tell someone's fortune by any divination means that you see fit, you will be cited for a misdemeanor. Uh, this law only applies to Avondale and is not active in the rest of Arizona though. So basically just uh, okay. don't do food in Avondale.
0: Because when I think Arizona, I think lots and lots of new agey people.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So I yeah, I wouldn't see that law sticking. So okay. But just one section of Arizona. I can deal with that. Okay. Cool. It won't bring my business over there. <laughs>
1: And the last one's not so much a weird law, but kind of an interesting use of legislation in Arizona. In 1971, the bolo tie became the official state necktie via a law passed in Arizona. A law? Yep. They passed a law citing that the bolo tie, a.k.a. that tie that's like basically two shoelaces that uh, that fit through a piece of jewelry, that is the official state tie, and it is enshrined in the law in Arizona.
0: Weird. Okay. That one's weird that they would be just like, okay, we're going to pass a law to make this the, (laughs) the tie. I thought it was gonna. I thought you were going to get a lot weirder with it though. And be like, and everyone must wear one at all times.
1: (laughs) That's a that's pushing it a little bit, but it does kind of crack me up though, because I feel like polo ties are like that tie that people always disagree about. Whether, like, it's truly a tie and it would, uh, like, account for, like, proper attire, so.
0: That's true. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, like, wear one to, like, a job interview or a funeral or something.
1: Unless you know? you're in Arizona. Then I fine. mean,
0: I wouldn't wear one, period. But, you know, <laughs> if I were the type to wear one, I would not do it in, like, a, you know, classier venue or, you know, at a wake.
1: You're not going to wear that your bolo tie to the fine dining restaurant? No.
0: Okay. Not not to not to Danny's, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's all I had for the weird laws in Arizona. I hope you I hope you enjoyed them. I
0: did. I very much did. So you got a true crime story for us?
1: I do. I do, and I think you'll enjoy this for various reasons. If notwithstanding the suspect's name, which is pretty ridiculous.
0: I love ridiculous names.
1: All right. So before we dive into the true crime, let me tell you a little bit about our location today. We are heading to Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix is the capital and most populous city in the state. And it's also the seat of Maricopa County. With 1.6 million residents, Phoenix is the fifth most populous city in the US, and it's the only capital city, and it's the only state capital with more than 1 million people living in it.
0: Really? Huh, oh, okay. Yeah,
1: interesting, right? I did not expect that. Phoenix is also a sprawling city, it stretches over 518 square miles. It anchors the Sun Valley metro area, which also includes Mesa, Scottsdale, Chandler, and Tempe, Arizona.
0: Okay. Oh, man. We're going in complete opposite directions in uh, our locations this episode. Fantastic.
1: Uh, One of the reasons Phoenix has flourished as a major city in the dry desert climate is its close proximity to the confluence of the Salt River and Gila River. And there is a robust irrigation system that the city relies upon. And the irrigation system is built along the Arizona Canal, which is a 50-mile canal that runs through Maricopa County. This extensive irrigation system has helped the small farming community that was settled in the 1860s transformed into the thriving city that we know as Phoenix. Uh, That transformation took place pretty quickly. By 1881, Phoenix was officially incorporated as a city. Hmm. The major drivers of Phoenix's economy in its early years were cotton, cattle, citrus, climate, and copper, locally known as the Five Seas. I have C's. Who doesn't love C's? I'm a C student for life. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Then after World War II and the increased availability of air conditioning, the city became a really attractive location for expansion of several high-tech companies, such as Motorola, Honeywell, Intel, and McDonnell Douglas. Between the employment opportunities and the rise of relocating retirees, Phoenix saw its population grow continuously over the last 60 60 years of the 20th century, going from roughly 60,000 residents in 1940 to 1.3 million residents by 2000. Wow. Yeah, definitely a boom city in the Sun Belt. Needless to say, there's so much to do when you visit Phoenix. There's a robust arts community that includes the Phoenix Symphony Hall, which is home to its own symphony orchestra, There's the Arizona Opera, Ballet Arizona, and there's a ton of fine art galleries sprinkled throughout the city's downtown, as well as the Phoenix Museum of Art. Speaking of museums, there are dozens within the city, like the Arizona Capitol Museum, Arizona Military Museum, the Hall of Flame Firefighting Museum, the Pueblo Grande Museum, an archeological park, the Children's Museum of Phoenix, Arizona Science Center, and one museum that I would love to go to. It's called the Musical Instrument Museum, and it features the biggest collection of musical instruments anywhere in the world. Oh, that's cool. I know. I'm kind of curious about the, the, the ability to touch and play with the instruments, which I'm sure they have, because who wouldn't have that in a music, musical instrument museum, right?
0: That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm also interested in the archaeological one
1: just Mm -hmm. because
0: it's me and I love that stuff so
1: I'm boring that's okay me too Phoenix is surrounded by a lot of natural beauty and state parks so if you enjoy more structured outdoor fun you can also explore the desert botanical gardens to learn about arid climate plants or hit one of the greens at Phoenix's 200 plus golf courses people love to golf in Phoenix
0: because they're old
1: yeah, exactly. What <laughs> retire? It's always warm. Why not get out on the links and, you know.
0: Exactly. Shoot some
1: balls at things.
0: And like I said before, it's a dry heat. So even if it's 110, you I'm using air quotes here, won't die. <laughs> I don't know. People people can suck it with that nonsense because it's still going to be hot as balls.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Heat is heat, I think, after you get yeah. to a certain point.
0: And I'm, I'm sure, you know, it, it does matter, like, you know, in less extreme circumstances where, you know, 80, 90 degrees won't feel quite as bad there as it does here. But when it's getting to, like, over 100, it's still going to be very, very oppressive.
1: Exactly. I think that's right on the money, too. I think it's like, you know, 80 degrees in Florida is vastly different from 80 degrees in Phoenix, right? It's probably pleasant in Phoenix.
0: Yes, Exactly. And I know you said botanical garden, so Mm -hmm. I'm assuming they're all like succulents then?
1: Yeah, they're all plants that uh, flourish in like drier, arid climates, so it's kind of very unique. That's cool. And if you're like me and you love to check out the more unique attractions that a location has to offer, Phoenix does not disappoint. While you're in the Valley of the Sun, you can check out London Bridge, the 1831 version, that is, which was relocated piece by piece to Arizona by Robert P. McLaughlin during the 1960s. What? Yes. So in the 1960s, the Victorian version of the London Bridge had fallen to such disrepair that they had to replace it with the current London Bridge. And this guy named Robert P. McCulloch bought it and had it shipped to the U.S. and reassembled.
0: That's awesome. And of course, not to be confused with the bridge that everyone
1: thinks London Bridge is, which is actually called Tower Bridge. Exactly. You can also swing by the Mystery Castle, a sprawling 18-room mansion built in the 1930s by Boyce Luther Gully out of a wide range of materials, including stone, adobe, automobile parts, salvage rail tracks, and telephone poles, all of which are held together by a combination of mortar, cement, and goat's milk. Cool. goat's milk? Yep. Goat's milk.
0: Okay, I was going to jokingly say duct tape, but I don't know, goat's milk is crazier, I think.
1: I guess that's the 1930s equivalent of duct tape.
0: <laughs> Maybe, who knows. <laughs>
1: um, The Mystery Castle is a really weird abode and it's full of odd objects, and I would say it's kind of similar to The Delightful House of the Rock in Wisconsin in terms of like weird roadside attraction factor. Yeah. Uh, and in another connection to Wisconsin, Phoenix is also home to the main campus for the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture, as well as Frank Lloyd Wright's winter home, Taliesin West. Uh, if you remember, I talked about the terrible murders at Wright's Wisconsin residence, Taliesin mm-hmm. East, during my Wisconsin true crime story. So I thought that was a lovely little connection. And if you were hoping for another bloody mess related to America's most famous architect, I am sorry to disappoint you. This week's true crime story is actually about a humble, normal, unfamous couple with a slightly unfortunate last name. I'm talking about Scott and Yarmilla Philater.
0: Oh, okay. That is a weird one.
1: <laughs> As Scott Philater and Yarmilla Kelsken were high school sweethearts who wed in 1976. Over the next 20 years, the Felaters had two children, a son and a daughter. Scott built a successful career as an engineer with Motorola, and Yarmila gave up a career in science to become a stay-at-home mom, and eventually she re-entered their workforce as a preschool teaching aide as her children grew older. They bought a nice house in Phoenix with a backyard and an in-ground pool, and eventually became very active in the local Church of Latter-day Saints community, both Scott and and Yarmilla were raised Catholics, but they converted to Mormonism together earlier in their marriage. By all accounts, Scott and Yarmilla had a happy, loving, faithful marriage. The biggest conflict between the couple was Scott's desire for more children and Yarmilla, whose faith in Mormonism had dwindled over the years, feeling that Scott spent too much time on church-related activities. He was still a devout Mormon and taught several Bible and religious studies classes throughout the week. The fact of the Philator's happy, quiet life together made the shocking events of January 17th, 1997, all the more horrifying. At first, it seemed like any other day. Scott got up early and went to work at Motorola before Yarmilla got the kids off to school. That evening, the family sat down and had dinner together. Yarmila asked him to look at the broken pool filter. Scott agreed to take a look after he finished prepping some material for an early religion class he was teaching the next day before he went to work. Around 9 p.m., Scott headed out to the pool to tinker with the filter. Giving up after about 30 minutes, he headed back inside. He found Yarmila drifting off to sleep watching the TV show ER on the couch. He kissed her goodnight and headed to bed himself. Around 10 p.m. that night, the filater's neighbor... Greg Coons and his girlfriend were also getting ready to turn in for the night. That's when they heard screams and a muffled, painful crying or moaning coming from outside. Coons decided to check it out and realized the sound was coming from next door. He made his way into his backyard and peeked over the fence. There, he saw his neighbor, Yarmila Filator, lying on the ground, barely moving.
0: Oh man, I was wondering which one of them was going to be dead, if not both.
1: <laughs> Initially... Coons thought Yarmila was passed out or drunk, but then he saw Scott walking towards Yarmila as he pulled on a pair of gloves. He proceeded to roll his wife into the pool and hold her head underwater. Panicked, Coons ran back into his house and called 911 for help. When Phoenix, the police department officers Joel Tranter, Steve Stenowick, and Kemp Layden arrived at the scene, they found Yarmila later floating in the backyard swimming pool. Oh. Stenowicz said he could tell from the amount of blood in the water that it was a bad situation. As he pulled her out and saw the numerous stab wounds, Stenowicz knew that she was dead. Quote, I've never seen a shark attack in person, but to me, it was reminiscent of a shark attack, Officer Tranner said of the scene. Wow.
0: Okay, that's... that's horrible.
1: Yes. Then Tranner and Layden noticed Scott Felater moving around upstairs. While Stenowicz... Stayed with Yarmilla in the backyard, the other officers rushed into the house and pointed their gun at Scott, who was coming down the stairs in his pajamas. The police ordered him to get onto the ground and demanded to know if there was anyone else in the house. Confused, Scott said yes, his wife and children were in the house, and the officers quickly did a sweep, finding both of the children asleep upstairs in their bedrooms. The officers immediately placed Scott under arrest. He was dressed in clean pajamas, but there was a large blood smear on his neck. Oh,
0: okay. Well, that's not looking so good. Mm -mm. And I mean, like, I was already formulating several um, motives in my head, depending on which one of them was going to be the one that ended up dead. (laughs) And, like, you know, after she sent him out to fix, you know, the pool filter or whatever it was, and, you know, then he came in and she was like, falling asleep on the couch. I've been in similar situations where I'm like, oh, sure, make me do all the work. And look here, you're just lounging about, you know. So, I mean, I could see frustration there. But still, true. don't freaking kill.
1: True. But also, I mean, she had made dinner for the family. And presumably true. cleaned up dinner for the family.
0: That's true. But when you're a Mormon, that is the woman's job. True, true. Because, you know, they they apparently don't think much of women.
1: Perhaps that's why Yarmila's faith had started to recede. Exactly. Yes. I don't blame her. So the interesting thing is that as the officers ordered Scott onto the ground and they handcuffed him and led him out to the back of one of their patrol cars, he seemed really confused about what was going on. He had no idea what was happening. He didn't know where his wife was, but he just kind of went along with the officers as Anyone would really do if they're in a situation like that. Now, the officers, after securing Scott in the back of one of their patrol cars, began a thorough search of the Felator house. They found a flashlight shining towards the pool pump in the backyard. The ground around the pump was stained with Yarmila Felator's blood. In the hallway leading to the second floor, police found a blood-smeared pebble that resembled the decorative rocks that surrounded the pool. Hmm. When they moved on to the garage, they saw a bloodstained T-shirt hanging out of the trunk of Scott Follier's Volvo station wagon. When they opened the trunk, they discovered a large, clear plastic container filled with what appeared to be blood-soaked clothing, including a pair of blue jeans, socks, and an undershirt, along with a blood-stained hunting knife.
0: Things are not looking so great for the husband Mm-mm. at all. Mm-mm.
1: Then next to the container in a black garbage bag, they found blood-soaked black leather gloves and blood-stained brown leather work boots. Hmm. When Scott was taken into the station for questioning, he again seemed really confused about what was going on. According to a later interview, Scott said, quote, It just didn't seem real. I'm not sure I was 100% coherent when I was sitting in the back of the police car. I'm not sure that even until I got to the police station that I was 100% convinced that Yarm was dead, end quote.
0: Hmm.
1: Phoenix homicide detective John Norman interrogated Scott about the events of the night. Scott claimed to have no memory of murdering his wife. When detective Norman pointed out that he had a blood on his neck, Scott later said he didn't know how it had gotten there. Detective Norman also told him that his wife had been stabbed and that a neighbor had seen him drowning her in their backyard swimming pool, which seemed to stun Scott. During the course of the interview, Scott revealed that he actually did have a history of sleepwalking, but Detective Norman wasn't convinced. Quote, I'm not going to buy his story when I got an eyewitness watching him drown her. No, his story was hogwash. The only thing I believed about his story was that, was that his name was Scott Felater, Detective Norman said in a 2020 interview.
0: Because who would want to lie about that?
1: Exactly. Uh, exactly.
0: And I don't know that I buy the whole sleep murdering thing either. So, So, yeah, I mean, because that's got to be a really, really, really rare form of parasomnia if it even exists.
1: I mean, it's interesting that you say that because that was a big crux of what happens to Scott as he heads towards trial. So he gets charged with first degree murder after the interrogation, the medical exam of Yarmilla's body reveals that she had 44 stab wounds.
0: Ooh. Damn. Yeah,
1: Six to the back, five to the neck, three to the abdomen, 10 to the breast and chest area, six to the front of the neck, two near her left ear, and then about 12 defensive-style wounds on her hands. Hmm. Five of wow. the wounds had penetrated so deep, at least four inches, that it would have the knife that he used would have been driven into the hilt. Wow. Yeah. At least four of the wounds would have been fatal. The autopsy concluded that at least three of the four wounds struck her lung and one struck her heart. Oh my God! The cause of death is listed as multiple stab wounds with drowning.
0: Damn. Okay.
1: Scoville later went to trial in June of 1999, and then Deputy Maricopa County District Attorney Juan Martinez sought the death penalty. If that name sounds familiar, that's because it's the same flamboyant prosecutor who led the case against Jody Arias that eating covered in part one of Arizona. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah that's great side note uh martinez was eventually disbarred in 2019 after apparently years of sexually harassing co-workers and sharing sensitive details about ongoing trials with a blogger girlfriend
0: not surprising
1: <laughs> yeah i guess some of the details he shared were actually related to, to jody aria's case so oh there was God. like some questions on whether they should retry her or not but eventually that was uh thrown out in her her um uh, sentencing yeah it yeah. stood so but, but yeah fun, fun facts <laughs> oh my
0: god he's nuts
1: <laughs> <laughs> totally totally um but back to scott fallater's trial uh his defense attorney argued that scott had a history of sleepwalking and that he had no motive to murder his wife testimony from the couple's friends and even their two children backed up this lack of a motive the couple I was I fin-
0: think there was a motive though why is that because his wife had kind of like lost her faith mm-hmm. in, you know, the whole Mormonism thing. He was very devout in his beliefs that already put a strain on the marriage, I'm sure, um, you know, and they have kids together. So, of course, he would want to raise them in the Mormon faith. And then she was, of course, a sinner. The fact that a lot of the stab wounds were in the breast area, I mean, could just be trying to penetrate the heart, but also could indicate more of a motive of seeing her as unclean as the breasts are considered sexual. You know, it just it makes sense that he would want to to hurt her in my mind because of because of this. And I'm sure there's more to their marriage too, beyond that that we don't know of yet. But just a little bit that I do know so far. I can see patterns forming and things that could lead to motive.
1: So, and that's kind of the interesting thing. Um, I guess I want to say like 10 years or so before the murder, um, Scott and Niamh had kind of come to that crossroads where she wasn't sure if she wanted to remain in the Mormon faith. And they actually took a trip to Salt Lake city where they learned more about, about Mormonism.
0: Of course they did.
1: (laughs) And she actually had a change of heart and agreed to be sealed uh in a marriage in a mormon temple with scott initially their first marriage had just been a civil ceremony with a mormon bishop presiding um and the sealing ceremony is the ceremony that basically marries you beyond death to us beyond part yeah. yeah and i guess the fact that scott was like i she asked scott do you do you want this and he said of course i do kind of changed her her mind and she agreed and it kind of renewed her faith in. They kind of renewed her faith in Mormonism then. Okay. Okay. I'll give this a chance. I'll see where it goes. Um, at trial, the couple's children um, testified that their parents very rarely fought, if ever, um, and that the family was was financially stable. So they didn't have money trouble, which is also something that couples tend to fight about.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Definitely. Uh, Yarmila's friends also backed up the fact that Scott was a very loving husband and that they didn't really have any marital troubles in that respect. So everything also seemed pretty normal according to witness testimony on the actual day of the murder. So that was sort of the gist of the process, or of the defense's case that Scott had no motive. And then, in terms of his history of sleepwalking, his sister actually testified. And during her testimony, she mentioned remembering previous sleepwalking incidents that occurred when Scott was young. Um, we're talking the, between the ages of eight and thirteen, where he would wake up at midnight, get dressed, and walk downstairs, saying he had to go to school. And he would look all glassy-eyed and be kind of robotish, robot-like about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, see, and that's that's normal. But stabbing someone how many times was so like forty or whatever? Forty-four times. 44 times, not normal in your sleep, not normal (laughs) at all, especially with that much rage and force that he used, not normal.
1: Well, here's the interesting thing. So that even when he was a a kid, I guess he had a tendency to overreact when he was sleepwalking and you touched him to try to wake him up. So his parents learned very quickly that the best way to handle it is to like gently guide him back to his bed, just like kind of direct him towards his bed and tell him that it's not time for school yet.
0: That is what they tell you to do. So, yeah, that Um, makes sense.
1: His sister also recalled a really scary incident that happened when Scott was 20 and she was about 15. Uh, Basically, her brother walked into the kitchen, half-dressed late one night, and was fumbling with the back door. She said that he seemed to be in a trance-like state, and she figured, oh, he was just sleepwalking again. So she leaned around him and locked the deadbolt, being careful not to touch him. But I guess he saw her and he got very upset and he lifted her and knocked her across the room. Uh, According to her later interview, she said, quote, he kind of lifted me up and tossed me. It was the spring of 1975 and Scott was getting married that June and he was coming up on school finals and he was really stressing. His face looked almost demonic when he reacted to me and it was really scared the hell out of me and kind of made me angry at the same time. Huh. End quote. So, interestingly enough, stress is a well-documented factor in many parasomnias, right? Um, People tend to sleepwalk when they're more anxious and stressed out. And it turns out, for months leading up to the murder, Scott Felater was really stressed. His team at Motorola was struggling with a project, and he needed to tell his bosses that the project wasn't going well. But if he did... And the project was canceled, it could lead to job upheavals or even layoffs. So he was very concerned about it. This work stress was consistently keeping him up at night. He would sleep for three or f- three hours or less for three or four nights in a row and then would crash and sleep up to nine hours. Wow. During the course of the this period, he had trouble focusing at work and sometimes would not off during work meetings. He even went so far as to take no on occasion when he was giving a presentation so that he could be alert and answer questions.
0: And that's kind of crazy because
1: no is basically straight caffeine. And that's a a, a big no-no for Mormons. What year was this? 1997. Okay. Uh, It also turned out in the hours before he killed Yarmila, he had attended a work meeting in which he had a verbal clash with his boss. Another important meeting for his project team was slated the following day, which would have been the Friday after he murdered Yarmila. His defense attorney argued that these factors all led to the tragic sleepwalking incident that resulted in her death. Now, I know you said this seems kind of like too crazy to be true, but here's the bizarre thing. There has been several successful uses of this wacky, I was sleepwalking, therefore I'm not guilty defense um, ever since the 1840s. Wow, that far back? Yeah. So in the 1840s, a really wealthy Boston man who had eloped and left his wife for a prostitute he had fallen in love with murdered the prostitute one night. And he claimed it was when he was sleepwalking and uh, he was a a documented sleepwalker and he was actually acquitted of all charges, which included like basically like slashing this this woman's throat and like trying to set the brothel on fire. But somehow he was (laughs) acquitted.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. So this has happened multiple times. Like if you look up uh, crimes committed while sleepwalking just like Googling that you'll come up with tons of cases where people have acted out more often than not. It's pretty straightforward and simple. Like there was a terrible case of a father who accidentally murdered like a three month old child because he picked the child up and threw the kid against a wall when he was sleepwalking. And that makes more sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's numerous cases of people like accidentally straggling their partner in their sleep, things like that. Most notably is that Many residents in Arizona were familiar with this sleepwalking defense because in 1981, a man named Steven Steinberg, who lived in Scottsdale, had stabbed his wife 26 times. And at first he blamed mysterious intruders before confessing to attacking her while he was sleepwalking. Steinberg was acquitted due to temporary insanity And the case was so controversial at the time that Arizona changed its laws to allow for a verdict that's guilty, but insane. So basically, if you get that, you aren't released, you're sent to a a mental institution.
0: Yeah, which is pretty standard.
1: Yeah. So the idea that somebody could murder somebody else while sleepwalking isn't new and especially wasn't new to Arizona residents.
0: And I don't like, I don't disagree that you, you you know, can't murder someone, you know, while sleepwalking. I think that you can, mm-hmm. but to stab mm-hmm. them 40 some times and then also go clean up and, you know, che- get a change of clothes and everything else before the police come, that's a little extreme. I've seen sleepwalkers. I even sleptwalked when I was a kid. I don't anymore, but I did when I was little. And, you know, I don't see someone doing that level of crazy in their
1: sleep i i agree i think you know just having the experience of, of knowing sleepwalkers like my, my wife used to sleepwalk when she was a little kid and just hearing some of her stories about what would what she would do and it's it's thing it's things you do every day it's like folding like she would fold her blankets and put them away mm-hmm. she would you know get dressed she would walk to the bathroom things like that that is so habitual that you can literally do it in your sleep I almost climbed out a window, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my.
0: Yeah, I was real little.
1: Um, but, but those are things that make sense. And that is actually what the prosecution kind of focused on. The idea that, yes, he may be a sleepwalker, but all of these things he did are so complex. Uh, most sleepwalkers do things like get up and get dressed, or even in extreme cases, wake up and cook breakfast. Scott did complete these tasks that were completely out of the ordinary. Like you said, he changed out of his bloody clothes into a fresh pair of pajamas. He placed all the bloody clothes he had along with the murder weapon back in his car. And the other thing that's kind of weird is that when he went back into the house, he got a pair of gloves, then drowned his wife. And then the last piece of evidence that prosecution presented is that apparently Scott also went back into the house to quiet down the family dog who had started barking during the attack. Wow. Okay. So while it's possible that he did all this while sleepwalking, it's very, very slim.
0: It's highly improbable. Yeah.
1: Yes. Even the sleep order experts who had testified in other trials of people who tried to use the sleepwalking defense admitted that. Though Scott demonstrated a typical sleepwalker profile when he underwent a sleep study as part of his defense, uh, the tasks he completed in his wife's murder were far too complex for someone who would be sleepwalking. Exactly.
0: Thank you, experts, for agreeing with me.
1: (laughs) The defense did try to bring up the fact that Scott was fixing the pool filter with a murder weapon, a hunting knife, and there were gouges in one of the rings of the pool filter that indicate he may have been unconsciously using the knife before he turned around and killed his wife. Speculation is that Yarmila saw him, went out to check on him and then he freaked out and attacked her.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe, but again, very, very improbable. Exactly. Um, And I mean, it just seems very coincidental that it was like, Hey, can you go out and, you know, check that, that pool filter. And then she ends up in the pool stabbed to death.
1: Exactly. And even one of the jurors said after the the trial ended that the knife was, quote, not used for any other purpose except killing. So by the end of the trial, the jury wasn't convinced. And Scott Felater was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, He today is still in a medium security prison. By all accounts, he is a model citizen, and he even works as a tutor, just like he did uh, in church before the murder. He claims that he still doesn't remember anything about Yermila's murder, and his kids apparently agree with them. They have maintained a relationship with their father, even though now they are adults with their own families.
0: Hmm. And I mean, like, I could see him maybe suffering some sort of psychotic break and, you know, killing his wife that way. But I I just don't buy the sleepwalking defense. I just don't.
1: Yeah, I, I don't necessarily buy the sleepwalking defense in this case. I, I kind of agree with you. I feel like he was somebody who was under a tremendous amount of pressure and yeah. was sleep deprived and was like, you know, constantly busy, like reading about like Scott's like weeks leading up to it. So he had this really tough work thing where he would basically – you know, work really long hours, he wouldn't, he'd often wouldn't get home until 7pm. And before work, he would get up at 5am to head to the, the church and teach a religion or Bible studies class, then head into a, for a full day of work. He just was, you know, burning the candle at both ends.
0: So and that can change your personality big time.
1: Yep. Yep. But I almost wonder if that's what it was that kind of set him over the edge. Yeah. But it's just, it's just sad because it seems by all accounts that they were very happy and all of the things that he has said since since his trial are very remorseful. Um yeah. and he he accepts the fact that he killed his wife. However, he doesn't remember it. So it's kind of that odd thing of like, I know I I hope. Like, he'll say things like, I hope when I leave this world that, you know, I'm forgiven and she's there waiting for me because she, she was such a lovely person. And she didn't deserve this and things like that. So, yeah. But, yeah, that's the sad story of Scott and Yarmila for later.
0: Well, that was horrible. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I just I I feel like maybe like there was something going on mentally with him um that's like that's where i'm at i don't think it was sleepwalk murder uh but i definitely think that he had some sort of psychotic break because honestly he was so stressed he had all that with work and all that with the church and you know just from every angle he wasn't getting enough sleep it's you know there was a lot going on Mm -hmm. so i Mm -hmm. don't necessarily think that he intended i don't think this was something that was planned i you know I feel that it was a crime of passion and he was not in his right mind at the time. However, don't think he was sleepwalking.
1: Cool. Well, there you have it folks. Eden agrees with the experts or the experts agree with Eden. I'm not sure. Hooray. (laughs) My sources for this week's story were Wikipedia, medium.com, ABC 15.com, phoenixnewtimes.com, people magazine, a forensics file episode called walking terror and azcentral.com.
0: Well, thank you, Nicole. We're using one of my favorite shows. <laughs> Alrighty, Well, I guess we are going to take a short break and then I'll be back with the news and my story. And we're back.
1: Do you have a fun news story to kick off The second part of our show?
0: I do. Cool. With a celebrity guest.
1: Ooh. This
0: one comes from DailyMail.com. And the headline is, Florida man punched by Mike Tyson on JetBlue plane is an ex-con who has served nearly three years in prison. Attorney says boxing legend should have exercised greater restraint. Whoops. So that's a lot in that headline. Let's see how we unpack it. The man who was punched by Mike Tyson after allegedly harassing the boxing legend aboard a JetBlue airplane at the San Francisco airport has been identified, and he has a lengthy criminal record. Melvin George Townsend III, 36, of Punta Gorda, Florida, has served 20- and 15-month prison sentences for a variety of crimes, including possession of oxycodone. (laughs) Really, Florida? I'm surprised. (laughs) Oxy? Wow. (laughs) Burglary grand theft, fraud, and trafficking stolen property, according to a record search. In one 2018 incident, he stole a trailer by trespassing and hitching the unit to his pickup, reported TMZ, which was the first media outlet to identify him. Of course they were. Why wouldn't they be? (laughs) Nothing is surprising in this article yet for me. Townsend was last released from a Florida prison in July of 2020 after serving 15 months for a 25 of a 25 month sentence for that incident and his use of a fraudulent personal ID. Hmm. He previously did time for trafficking stolen property in 2009 and 2010.
1: Well, okay Towns- then.
0: Yeah. Townsend does have a lawyer, although he has yet to sue the 55-year-old Tyson. To state the obvious, As one of the greatest fighters of all time, Mr. Tyson should have exercised greater restraint before using his hands on an overly excited fan, Townsend's attorney, Matt Morgan, told TMZ. Townsend is, quote, still in shock, end quote, according to Morgan, who left open the possibility of a lawsuit. Townsend has not made a determination on what his next steps will be. He hired counsel due to his physical injuries. The overwhelming nature of this event and the Associated Media inquiries. A video from Wednesday's assault shows Tyson punching Townsend before the JetBlue flight had taken off from San Francisco to Fort Lauderdale, leaving the Florida man with a bloody forehead. However, a representative from the Brooklyn-born boxer claims he was reacting to Townsend, an unruly passenger who had been harassing him, and actually threw a water bottle at Tyson. What the fuck? Unfortunately, Mr. Tyson had an incident on a flight with an aggressive passenger who began harassing him and threw a water bottle at him while he was in his seat, a representative for Tyson told DailyMail.com in an email. Townsend, through his attorney, is denying throwing the water bottle. Well, that's what happens when you're hopped up on Oxy. (laughs) Our client is a big Mike Tyson fan, Morgan told TMZ. When Mike Tyson boarded the plane, he became overly excited. At first, their interaction was cordial. At a certain point, Mr. Tyson clearly became agitated by an overly excited fan and began to strike him in an excessive manner, Morgan continued. This situation could have been avoided simply by contacting the flight attendant. Our client denies throwing a water bottle prior to being struck by Mr. Tyson. San Francisco police did detain two individuals from the flight, but declined to identify either. They did pass along the video to San Mateo County Police, who have yet to respond to DailyMail.com's request for comment. And that is the end of the article.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: So, that guy sounds like a jerk. Yeah. I mean, Mike Tyson does have a history of, um, you know, some violent behavior, such as biting off of Vander Holyfield's ears. Or ear. Sorry. Just one. Just he over. still has the other one, to my knowledge. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he probably didn't just punch a random fan.
1: Yeah, that seems kind of un untoward even for Mike Tyson.
0: Mhm.
1: Uh, Florida. Florida, got to love it. Do you though? Well, do I?
0: It's good for entertainment value, okay?
1: I mean, you're not wrong. And beaches. Oh, the beaches are beautiful. That's true. That's true. And my relatives. <laughs>
0: Well, that was my news story, so I guess I will move on along to my paranormal story for the week. My story for this week takes place in Jerome, Arizona, which is in the Black Hills of—I have no idea if I'm pronouncing this county right, so here we go—Yavapai County. Ever heard of it, Nicole? Maybe you can help me out.
1: Nope. No clue.
0: It's Y-A-V-A-P-A-I. So I have no idea. But that county, yes, that one, um, it has a population of 444, making it super small. That's why I said we're going in complete opposite directions in our locations this week.
1: Ah, okay.
0: It is also small in area with an area of less than one square mile. It was mostly a copper mining town. And in its heyday, which was like the 1920s, it had a population of 10,000 with some of the richest copper mines in the world. These mines have since depleted and shut down in 1953. Around the time that this happened, the town's population dipped below 100, so I'm glad it had a little bit of a comeback, I guess. Now, Nicole, I know you had a place that was crazy high up in Montana, and this mm-hmm. one is similar since it's 5,000 feet above sea level.
1: Wow.
0: Yep. Nosebleed bleed time. The town itself is a national landmark as of 1967 and has a rich history, which you can find out about by visiting the town since probably 90% of what I found to do in Jerome is history-related. There are plenty of historic tours and walks, a Wild West tour, and a bunch of ghost tours. There's one called Pandora's Box Ghost Adventure, which, according to TripAdvisor, 96% of people recommend.
1: Okay, that's a pretty good... Uh, recommendation on TripAdvisor for sure.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I'd also be remiss if I did not mention something for the tool fans out there. Maynard has his own wine store called Caduceus Cellars in Jerome. Ooh. This is certainly a ghost town with a lot of ghosts, but my story deals with one of the most haunted places in the state the Jerome Grand Hotel. Now, before I can even begin talking about the Jerome Grant Hotel, because I love doing things in chronological order, we need to talk about what this place was before it was a hotel. Initially, in 1917, on the land, which is now the Jerome Grant Hotel, was United Verde Hospital, because, you know, turning an old hospital into a hotel never caused a haunting before. Not once. So, like I said, this place is built in 1917 by the United Verde Copper Company because everything here goes back to copper. I think there was even copper in your intro, too, wasn't there?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of copper deposits in Arizona for sure.
0: Yeah. The building was in the style we most commonly see this far west, the Spanish Colonial Revival which is one of my favorite architectural styles. We barely have any around here. And when you see them here, they look completely out of place. But I love them anyway, especially when they have those stairs with the mosaic tiles. Mm -hmm. Love it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, back to the hospital. The name of the architect was Arthur R. Kelly, not to be confused with singer, pedophile, and urine lover R. Kelly. (laughs) The hospital was three stories with your basic white tiles and an attached morgue in the back, it overlooked downtown Jerome. Closer to the town itself was the home of the hospital's chief surgeon, which was built at the same time as the hospital. It was built mostly to relieve tensions among the miners who had begun to strike, and the hospital and housing along the same stretch of road, Hill Street, was supposed to provide better working conditions for them. The hospital experienced very high traffic, not just due to the fact that this was a mining town and mining is dangerous work, but think about what year it was built, 1917, and what happened the following year? Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The hospital ran for about 10 years before Bigger and Better Hospital was built farther up the street after a fault shift caused the old one to be damaged beyond repair. The first hospital was turned into the library and clubhouse. The newer hospital was 30,000 square feet, which is pretty big, and in 1930 was considered the most modern hospital in Arizona and maybe even the western U.S. It did have a lot of great amenities like sheet warming closets, an ice making room, labs, backup power, and a lot of things we see as normal technology today, but they were a big deal a century or so ago. The hospital continued to serve the community until closing in 1950, a mere three years before the mine shut down and this town seemed to die out. From what I've learned, the hospital remained fully furnished until the 70s or 80s. And in order to keep this place from being vandalized, the owner, uh, a company called Phelps Dodge, hired a live-in caretaker to watch over the place. Yeah, they weren't doing anything with it. They're just like, here, you live here. You take care of it. This is yours
1: now. Make sure no one messes with our stuff. Thanks.
0: Exactly. Tell them all to fuck off. Um, So I do not know if there was more than one caretaker or if it was all the same guy, but I do know that a caretaker committed suicide in 1980 on the property and the place was boarded up after that. Cheery. Mm -hmm. And if you're wondering... The suicide took place in the boiler room because those are never creepy enough after 1984 with A Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) In December of 1993, Phelps Dodge, the company who owned the hospital, sold to the current owner of the hotel, Larry Alther. There was quite a bit of construction that had to happen to turn the hospital into a hotel, starting with a parking lot. In the 20s and 30s, cars existed, but not too many people really drove. Mm -hmm. So the hospital only had 12 parking spaces. And you know how many you need for a freaking hotel.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So, according to the hotel website, over a thousand dump truck loads were excavated to make the now 70 parking spaces. And that is a near verbatim quote. Wow. Also, according to the website, Due to the fact that this was a mining town and blasting happened a lot, fire was a major concern. And the United Verde Copper Company turned this place into an above-ground bomb shelter, essentially, with three fire zones on each floor and a six-hour fire break between floors. Everything here, other than the doors and cabinets, pretty much are made of concrete and other non-flammable materials like gypsum.
1: Wow, that's, that's intense.
0: Yeah, so in other words, this place is sturdy as fuck, probably because of what befell the first hospital, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because that was also due to blasting. The hotel today is quite beautiful and has a bunch of amenities such as a restaurant, queen beds, Wi-Fi, climate control, satellite HD TVs, and so much more. There are also pastries, bagels, coffee, and tea in the mornings in the lobby, all free of charge. Rooms are mostly, like, to accommodate two to four guests, and roll-away beds are available upon request. All the rooms I saw also had balconies, and I did not see a weird hallway-sized room this time with awkward twin beds staring at each other and a TV only one person could see.
1: Oh, moving up in the world.
0: (laughs) Yes. There are even rooms with connecting balconies if you want, which is cool. So, like, let's say you have, like, a big group going and Mm -hmm. you get two rooms next to each other, you guys can have a connecting balcony. Oh, cool. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Uh, The grand suite is 2,000 square feet, which is like a little more than two of my house. And it takes up the whole north wing and has a full kitchen, because I guess why not cook on vacation? Uh, I did not find that they had a pool, so I'm a little disappointed, but oh well.
1: Yeah, no pool in Arizona sounds a bit...
0: eh. Horrible. (laughs) Yeah. The Jerome Hotel is also home to something very interesting, which has been in the hotel's garage since 2003, a 1928 Rolls-Royce Phantom One Lonsdale. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you're into vintage automobiles, check this one out. As far as hauntings go, it's really interesting because the owner said he felt a presence like right as soon as he entered to start renovations. He said he felt immediately uneasy and wasn't sure if he was welcome there. But over the second month of his time there, he said the feeling started to go away and it felt more like a protective energy than anything else. At this point, I don't think he like fully believed that anything was really there. Because I found another source with a quote from him saying, quote, We were skeptical and didn't believe in it in the beginning. We only had six rooms open at first and immediately began receiving reports from guests hearing voices and a hospital gurney in the hallways, but no one was there, end quote.
1: Um, Freaky.
0: Yeah, really freaky. Just like some of the other hotels we've discussed, this, is, uh, this one has a guest book that you can sign and share your experience in, and a lot of these feature firsthand accounts of the hauntings in the words of the guests.
1: That's kind of cool. I love those guest books, though.
0: Yeah, they're really cool. I'd be like, can I just borrow this and take this into my room? Thanks. <laughs> um, the owner says that they fill a 300-page journal each year with wow, all the reports.
1: Wow, that's crazy.
0: Yeah, it's it's hella haunted here. The entire hotel is said to be haunted, but the third floor seems to be the center of the activity since that's where the operating room was and where a lot of people have died. Oh, As far as the gurney wheel sounds in the hall goes, the owner said they've changed the carpet and everything, and you can still hear it at 3 a.m.
1: Yay!
0: He also said one time he got a call from a room that was supposed to be unoccupied and could hear a woman on the other end, but the words were inaudible. Like, he just couldn't make them out. And then when he went to check the room, there was no one there.
1: Those are, like, extra creepy, Mm -hmm. where it's like here's a room. There's no one staying in it, but you keep getting phone calls. I'm like, that's like, yeah, no, no,
0: nope. exactly. Stupid prank calling ghosts. <laughs> There's also a ghost cat that will jump up on your bed and otherwise just walk around. Uh, he or she is also on the third floor and is one of the more common ghosts to be seen. We all love our ghost pets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Room 32, which is also on the third floor is particularly haunted. Guests say, and with good reason. It was a hospital guest room and the scene of two suicides. And guess what? Neither of those was the groundskeeper. So why do people seem to love killing themselves here?
1: The squeaky wheel because you can't get
0: a good night's sleep? I guess, maybe. And that's not all that keeps you from sleeping in this hotel, I will tell you that. But that's a spoiler. <laughs> the first was a minor who was stuck in a wheelchair, I'm assuming after a mining accident, because that seems very likely, and fed up with his fate, he threw himself off the balcony of room 32. The other suicide was a businessman who was staying there, and he shot himself.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Besides these suicides um, and operating room deaths we've discussed, there was also the death of a maintenance man On the property who was crushed by an elevator all the way back in 1935 although some people say he was murdered and the Mm -hmm. copper company covered it up but who knows there's been reports of orbs shadows that move on their own flickering lights cold spots objects moving and all those basics Ghost Adventures was here because where haven't they been, I guess. <laughs> uh, they did manage to record some EVP, but I refused to listen to it because Ghost Adventures.
1: Good for you. Not worth it.
0: Yeah. I just, I can't stand his voice anymore. Um, There were also a few creepy pictures I saw that people had taken of this like misty sort of energy. And one that nearly looked like a lightning strike. Ooh. There are also said to be, like, full-bodied apparitions in this place. Uh, There have also been reports of people being touched by someone just to turn around and there's no one there. No thanks. They can hear children running and laughing and, you know, there are no children around. They smell hospital smells. uh, People running on the stairway when there's no one there.
1: God, you're right. This really does not sound like a restful getaway
0: in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) Lots of noises you would also hear in a hospital are still present, like coughing, sneezing, and labored breathing from rooms that are completely unoccupied. Hmm. People have seen doctors, nurses, and patients wandering the halls as well. The head nurse's ghost can be seen in the restaurant lounge area. Uh, which used to be this dispensary, so it makes sense to see her there. There's a ghost of a little boy who is reported to be about four or five, who likes to watch guests sleep, and you'll wake up to him at the foot of your bed.
1: Ah, uh, no, 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 thanks. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm.
0: There is just so much going on at this place that I'm sure there are more stories than what I found, but that's what I had time for. So, if you guys have stayed here or know anyone that has or you know anything about this place, please send us an email and let us know if I missed anything. I'd love to know what else goes on here. Uh, so, Nicole, would you be up for meeting that ghost cat?
1: Uh, maybe, but, like, oh, the little boy at the end of the bed? Like, no I know. thanks. No wonder, like, I was kind of surprised when you said, well, that's 300 pages of of, like book journals every year. Like, no Mm -hmm. wonder there's so much activity here.
0: Yeah, there's a ton.
1: I do think it's interesting how it kind of runs the gambit of like activity as well. So it's like the hospital sounds and just that's super interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think this place is super crazy. And I, I, when I read that it was like one of the most haunted, you know, places in Arizona,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I was like, I'll be the judge of that. And I'm like, oh, okay, you've, you've got enough. You're certainly prolific enough. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty damn haunted.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Would you stay here overnight?
1: I mean, I probably wouldn't be able to sleep if I'm honest with myself. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I wake up at the pin drop, so. hmm Like the the wheelie carts, I'm like, that's like a special, like the gurney wheels. I'm like, that's a special place of annoyance for me where it's like the squeaks of like, what is that stuff?
0: Exactly. Like, I mean, I'd like to experience it, to experience it just to say that I did, you know, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I could actually stay here.
1: Fair enough. Then we are going to skip this one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll just go investigate uh we'll 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 investigate overnight and um we'll have slept sometime during the day. There you go. Somewhere else. Um so my sources for this week were Wikipedia, Tripadvisor.com, Jerome Sah-Archipedia.org, phoenixghost.com, azcentral.com, and thrillist.com. Excellent.
1: Thanks for that story, Eden. Uh absolutely. I'm excited that we wrapped up Arizona with some interesting stories um, and very haunted locations, weird murders, all the good stuff that we come to look forward to.
0: Exactly. Yes. Arizona was pretty good. I enjoyed it.
1: I am looking forward to Utah, especially since I know you've been working hard on your Utah true crime story.
0: Yes, I have. And I bet Utah is going to be a wacky, wacky state. I just have a strong
1: feeling we're going to find some good ones in Utah. I agree. I agree. Well, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can do that a variety of ways. You can send us a quick message to our email. We are roadside show at gmail.com.
0: You can also visit our website at roadside show.podbean.com.
1: We are also on social media surprise. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at roadside horror show and on Twitter at roadside horror
0: and we'd like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and EMASI for our intro and outro music.
1: Until next time, Roasters. Creep on, creepin' on.